Okay. Okay, I can see what I need to see, and now I can get rid of them. Ah, let's, let's see, what am I? What is today? February 19, 2023, lecture discussion number 192 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. Uh, just more of what we have been doing here lately for the last 12 weeks or so. I should say we're back on March 5th, so those of you who keep track of that, uh, that's important to know. Uh, I also need to point out that uh, last on the what was it the lecture 191 whatever day that was I, I lose track now I had a infected tooth while I did that and I struggled through it as best I could and then on Monday morning I was able to get into an endodontic uh, surgeon and they gave me a root canal. So I'm 90 minutes, no, two hours upside down while this gentleman destroys my face, which I can't afford much more face destruction than I've already got. But I managed to get through it, and it was a tough time both as a, at the lecture and certainly afterwards. Okay, enough of that. In case some, a few people were wondering, what was wrong with you? Well, there are lots of things. But particularly, I can blame this on that uh, root canal and I, I have more to do. I have to go back into a regular dentist to get it all stabilized. But it was an interesting day, I can tell you that. Don't want to do that again. Probably I have to. Okay, as is the regular occurrence after each lecture, the vast Internet audience responds, and that is always a good thing. I'm very interested in what you are thinking out there. I have a long and standard procedure, as most of you are aware, if one of you, if someone takes the time to raise a passage of scripture or an inquiry concerning a mystery in, in the Bible with respect to their particular front or perspective, then I, I presume immediately and I expect that there's a company of others out, out there that are likewise inclined to that particular issue. They're just not willing to put a quill pen to paper or an email to, into the ether, whichever is more so applicable to you. To me, obviously, I prefer quill pen. I hand, people ask me, do you really handwrite this every, yes I do. It's, that's handwritten, that's my printing, I print it, I don't handwrite it by cursive. Uh, so obviously I'm not uh, interested in uh, technology for this particular aspect of what I do. Well anyhow, I had three exemplary comments slash questions that came through uh, subsequent to lecture number 191. Let me put this where I can read it just a little bit better. That sounded interesting. Was it your phone? Is that what it was? Anyway, one came from John G. of Pennsylvania. He's pretty much a regular contributor, like most of you are, and that's a wonderful thing. He's a very bright guy, and he has interesting ideas. And so John G. of Pennsylvania, and he noted that Christ invokes or raises the ego in me. The I am that I am of Genesis, I'm sorry, of Exodus 3.14. He does it at John 18.5 through 9. Uh, and when that happens, when you see him do that, when Christ does that, then you know this is an amazing time. Whatever he's doing is incredibly important. And uh, therefore, the I am that I am of Exodus 3.2 through 6 and Exodus 3.14 and Genesis 15.7 and Genesis 28.13 and Matthew 22.32 that attaches to John 18, 5 through 9, which, as I hope you know, you might not, but as you should know, that is where we have this arrest of God. Now, when I say arrest, that's a quotation mark. They come to arrest Jesus Christ, God himself, in the flesh, the word made flesh of God, at Gethsemane, the garden, the oil press. And the Apostle John records Christ speaking the I am that I am, the ego in me. That's what Christ says there. And that causes the detachment of troops, which is the Romans and the temple guard, to fall face down in the dust. And whenever you see human beings in the dust, of course, then we're at Genesis 2-7. We're at Numbers 16-4, where Moses and Aaron fell into the dust. So whenever you see that happening, uh, you begin to start putting pieces together. Dust is a very important theme in Scripture. Uh, we return to dust, Ecclesiastes 12-7. All of these things that, in, that talk to us about dust are critically important to find and, and to assimilate. A question immediately when you look at what Christ says now at John 
18. You recognize 8, 5 through 9 at Gethsemane. When you look at what he said, you ask yourself, how loud did he say it? So how, lo- how, how lo- loud is God's voice? And remember, he is the word made flesh. So he's the one that speaks the creation into existence with his voice. That is the resonance. That's the vibration. That's the frequency. All of those things uh, from the physics community. So how loud did he say this? Uh, Matthew 27, 46. How loud is loud? Matthew 27, 46. That's the Psalm 22, 1 revelation. He, he says Matthew, Psalm 22, 1 and Matthew 27, 46. He says that in a loud voice. When Christ uses his loud voice, things are going to happen besides what we think. In other words, there's collateral damage if you want to think of it that way. When he, when he drove all of those people into the dust, uh, there are other things that are occurring simultaneously to that. Certainly the God of creation, and Christ is the God of creation, never make that mistake, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Certainly he knew, duh, John 19, 28, John 21, 17. He knows all things. And I'm putting these references in so you can find them yourselves. Uh, I did have somebody say, if only I would do it slower. But technology being what it is, you have fast forward and you have reverse and you have all of those things. He knew when he said, I am that I am. When he repeated what he says in Exodus 3.14, he knew, obviously, he knows all things. He's omniscient that thousand or more soldiers would fall. He knew that when he said it. And probably each one would think or exclaim, help, I've fallen and I can't get up, right? That's what they would do. That's the situation they're in. They cannot stop from falling and they cannot get up. He's in control of that. Well, I always ask the question, how long were they in this position? How long did he leave them there? We have a tendency to think that it was pretty quick. But why would it be? He he could leave them there for 30 minutes to an hour, whatever he chose to do. And notice as well that God himself in the flesh, John 1, 1 through 4, repeats John 17, 12 in this situation. Those whom you have given me, I have kept none. I'm sorry, I have kept and none of them are lost except the son of perdition. He says that at Gethsemane when he yells out his I am that I am of Exodus 3.14 and when they fall into the dust, he also says uh, of those whom you have given me, I have kept and none of them are lost except Judas. So what is the obvious question now? Why are all of these things put in this nice little package for us? Remember, of course, the son of perdition, Judas, John 17, 3, was leading this detachment. He's in charge of this. He's incredibly powerful. He has Satan inside of him. He is the son of Satan, the seed of the serpent. Incredibly powerful. The only person in all of human history that Satan has been inside of. And that is a very powerful human being. And he's leading this attachment, this detachment of, of forces because no one can stop him from doing it. And now his motive for doing it is not generally what you think. Does he recognize that he cannot, cannot arrest Jesus Christ? He knows that. And then, of course, it goes into the farewell kiss and all of that, which I'll get to in a minute. Judas is there to identify God, knowing full well what will happen. The Roman soldiers in the temple guard will believe that they can capture God like they could get anybody else. And Judas knows that that is profoundly stupid and he can't wait to watch it happen. And, and um, Judas kisses him, Matthew 26, 48 uh, through 50. That's the kiss again. That's the sign of farewell is what that means. He is telling God, he is telling Christ that he knows he, Judas, is lost. I'm lost. And what's the obvious question now? What subject are we in again still? We're still in hyper-Calvinism versus temporal uh, Arminianism. Judas knows he's lost. That's why the farewell kiss. That's why all of this activity. What's the obvious question? How does he know he's lost? Why does he know he, why does he know he's lost? What process would have to happen for him to know that he is lost? What process would have to happen for him to know why he's lost? 
consider the importance of the determinism versus free will debate right here. John 18. Anyway, they drew, drew back and they fell at the word of, word of God. This is the word of God. This is God, the word God. Speaking aloud the I am that I am. And thus we have this initial question. Why do they fall? He says it in a loud voice. He says, I am that I am, and they all fall. But what's the question? Why do they fall? Is it the pressure? Is it the vibration? What makes them fall? The force? Obviously, sound waves have force. There's thousands of these guys, at least 1,000, maybe more. They all fall from the loud voice. What's the lesson? Well, I'm going to tell you that the Aleph Tav, Revelation 1.8, that's the infinite, timeless one. That's Jesus Christ who can see all things without motion. When he says that I am infinite, he is saying that he can see things without motion. And this is where John uh, from Pennsylvania brought up this, well, why he was interested in this. And he's the one who spoke the word himself, John uh, 1, 1 through 4. He spoke all things into motion. So what's the easy question now? If he can speak them into, into motion, can he speak them into motionlessness? And that's where John went. That's where he was going, John G. I am that I am is a time reference. Never forget that. He is, he's saying I am in the present at all time. I see everything, all of time, at the same time. I am the only one who is in the present. We are, of course, not in the present. We have no present. You've heard me say this thousands of times. If you think you have a present, measure it for me. How much? How, what is your present? Obviously, we have no present, but he has only present if he so chooses. That's why he calls himself the I am and not the I was or the I will be. He's the I am, right? So he sees all of time. He's always in the present. He's the I am, as you know. And all that uh, to suggest that Christ probably, logically, withdrew time here. That's a time reference. So something about time happened at Gethsemane. And if he removes time, or if he stops time, or if he does something with time, then what happens to motion? Motion is linked to time, so anything that happens to time is going to happen to motion. Something that is described at John 8.59, which I propose reflects the process at, at John 18.6. What's happened in the John, at John 18.6? Remember, I've tried, tried to get you to understand. When you find a verse in Scripture, start to just look at every single word and find out what those words mean elsewhere and how many of them connect. What's going on in John 18.6? That is where Jesus Christ, God himself, who is in control of time, in control of motion, he is threatening to be killed by rocks, which is the dumbest thing ever besides trying, trying to arrest him. And he passes through people. Jesus passes through the midst of them in John 8.59. And so notice the similarity. What happens in John 8.58? What happens in John 58? That's a fantastic verse. Jesus says this, before Abraham, I am that I am. What he says. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. Now what is the, what is the process of Jesus Christ, the infinite God, hiding himself? How did he hide himself? But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, Ezekiel 10. What do I mean there? I have the Shekinah glory going out, and whenever I have the Shekinah glory going out of the temple, I go to Ezekiel 10, where the Shekinah glory did what? Left the temple. By which gate did Adam and Eve went out of? But in, in any event, when he passes through these people, before he does that, he says, I am that I am. And that's, and again, I ask the question, does motionlessness occur there too? Because what happened at John 8.59 happened at Gethsemane. Same thing. Again, the I am that I am of Exodus 3.14 is spoken. And John 8.58 is built on John 8.24 where Christ says, Therefore I say to you, I said to you, that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe, 
I am that I am. You will die in your sins. You have to believe that He is the I am that I am. That's the, that's the truth of who He is. The timeless, infinite, omniscient God of all creation. That's what He says He is. That's who He is. I understand the triunity element. I'm not focusing on that today. I just want you to know you better understand who He is. John 8.28, another statement from Jesus God. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. The I am that I am. The existent one. He's the one who has existence. He's the being one. He has all beingness in him. And anything that has beingness or existence comes out of him. That's the only source of it. He's the only source. There is no other source. People ask all the time, why is there only one way to Christ? Well, because he's the only one with existence. You don't have existence in any other place except through him. And all of these and many, many more, they assemble to reveal what really happened at John 18, 5 through 6. Again, that's Gethsemane. What really happened there? You can go find these other pieces where he says these things and look at what happened there and combine them together and come up with an idea of what happened at Gethsemane. Without controversy, the Exodus 3.14 is prominent there. It's unprecedented. It's unimaginable. All things descend from this. The Eyah, or in the ego, in the, in the Greek. All things flow from the I am that I am. All, and by all things, I mean all things. And time itself, perhaps being alongside of infinity and existence and, and, and life as an ineffable situation or an ineffable entity. And keep in mind that the name of God, YHVH, is the unpronounceable, ineffable, the, the word that cannot be uttered, it's unspeakable. And time has a characteristic that associates with that. And hopefully you're beginning to observe the trend. We are of this world. The I am is not of this world, John 8.23. He is above and we are beneath and God cannot be described by finite beings. Good luck with that. It will never work. Okay, so that was how we, how one comment that I got that I thought was spectacular. And, and next we have Catherine from Eagle River, whom we all know. And we have Valerie from Ireland. They both came up with the same idea, not simultaneously, but... Each raised the matter of angels in time, which right now half of the audience is going, get me out of here. And they did that, I think, as a response to my intentional ambiguity. Because I am intentionally ambiguous. Though I prefer cryptic. And so when I do these kinds of things, I do that on purpose in a way to advance the subject. I don't like to, as you know, lay it out for you because that doesn't do you any good. And this is a structure and a system of how to understand Scripture that I'm, that I'm attempting to get as far as deep as the depth of it as far as I can go. I have to drink some water here. And why am I doing that? I'm doing it because I recognize how incredible it is when you think like this. This is Jewish logic. He had Jewish men, predominantly Nebuchadnezzar being an exception, of course, write his Bible, compile it. They think in this in this way, and I want you to begin to start thinking like it's not just Jewish men, the Jewish people. And I'm going to submit that time for humanity and animals is significantly more intensified than it is for angels. So when we're talking about angels in time, we have to include human beings and animals and make a comparative analysis, right? In the mankind and animal experience, the death of the physical body, Hebrews 9.27, Psalm 90.10, and Genesis 6.3, Psalm 139.16 probably belongs in here as well. And Psalm 139.16 is surely a time verse. And please don't call me surely. Um, and when you start talking about time and human beings and angels and animals, and in your book, Revelation 20.11-12, through 12, Revelation 20.15, Psalm 69.28, Luke 10.20, and in your book, they were all written. Who is the they in that question? In that statement? 
they were all written. In your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me. That's Psalm 139, 16, and 17. 139, 16 is where he, he, the writer of the psalm, David, is saying, I am wonderfully and awesomely and uniquely made. And in your book, they were all written for me. The days fashioned for me. So there's a book. What's in the book? Psalm again, 139.16, proclaims that Ecclesiastes 3.17 is a purpose of time. So when I'm going to talk about angels and time, then I have to bring in the book. And there's a purpose of time. The judgment of the righteous and the wicked, for, for there is a time for every purpose and every week. Human purpose includes what? What has to happen before an activity or an action? There must be first a purpose. What is a purpose? Well, I submit to you that the purpose is your thought process. So you're going to think. So for every purpose, there is a time. That means time is in authority over the purpose in the sense over the thought, in the sense that the thought is recorded in the book. I search the mind and the heart, Jesus Christ said. I'm the only one that does. So, the, everything is categorized, enumerated by time. And again, Christ is the purpose. Uh, Romans 8.28. We've got to make sure that you know that the purpose is a person. But I'll get to that later on as we go. And, and so I, I refer to this enumeration of purpose and time, or thought and time, or action and time being recorded in a book. I did that in Lecture 191, February 5th, 2023, page 17. Last sentence of that lecture is that God has a time stamp system. And what he does with time, and what he does with his book, is record everything in it and assigns a time to it. Everything, all things are assigned a time. That's Ecclesiastes 3.1 and Ecclesiastes 3.11. Somehow that is applicable to the angels in time and obviously humans in time and obviously animals in time. Everything is recorded, which is the point, yea, a point. One of the functions, one of the objectives, one of the ways of time, if you will, to think of it that way, is to document it, is to archive everything. That's what God is doing with time. Easy question. Why did the judge of all things, John 5.22, Revelation 20, install time and utilize it as an archival structure. Why did he do this? He has a reason. Obviously, I answered the question in the question by merely asking the question, and I know what you're thinking. How does he do it? Let me answer, ask it again. Why did the judge put a timestamp system in? Because it's what? It's evidentiary. Time provides evidence. Time for humans and animals, as an aside here, is associated with death. The aging and dying of the body as I am on display. I am aging, my body is destroying me. Not me, but itself. Uh, tooth by tooth, kidney by kidney, heart. I mean, I'm just having big problems here. I have cervical stenosis. So time for humans and animals is associated with death, the aging and dying of the body. Whereas the person, the consciousness, is unaffected by the death of the body. That's Genesis 2.7, Ecclesiastes 12.7. When I'm in the dentist chair, they are talking about a girl that was killed in a car accident, the, the, uh, the doctor and his assistant. And when that, that was over, I was able to say to her, the body is dead, but not the person. And that is a critical piece of knowledge for everyone to have. And that is Genesis 2.7, Ecclesiastes 12.7. Nonetheless, time and mortality or death are combined for two of the three kingdoms. The angels are exempted. What's the obvious question? Why are the angels not, not part of this? What's different about them? We and animals, we resurrect. Angels do not resurrect. Why not? Humanity can multiply and animals can multiply after their own kind. Angels cannot multiply with angels. Why not? Angels turned out to be able to multiply, but not with angels, huh? Genesis 6. 
Immediately the question flies out and smacks you upside the head. Why do the angels not have a complement to the death of the body? Or at least it appears that they don't have a complement. Uh-oh, that could be a trick question. I have the position that the greater ruling light and the lesser ruling light, Genesis 1, 14 through 19, are symbolizing the absolute time of God. Because the absolute time can't be displayed. Why not? I made the comment that he has a absolute time. I think lecture 190, maybe 191. God has an absolute time, but he can't tell us what it is. Why not? How complex is his time? We can't do it. We're finite. So they have to, so the greater light, the sun and the moon, they symbolize the absolute time of God. They're portraying it. They are the mechanical portrayal of the existence of absolute time or the mind of God time, if you want to think of it that way. For every time there is a purpose. How many purposes are there? How many thoughts have you had while at the same time I've had the same thought? How many? How many purposes are there? Activities, actions, movement. Every one of them is assigned a time. So how much, one second, five years ago, how many things are assigned to that? 10, 15, or whatever time you want to pick. Well, we'll pick one. Uh, 4.28, two months ago. How many things happened? And this time, and obviously his time is, is, is encompassing. It doesn't have, we, he didn't have daylight savings time. He doesn't have Eastern Standard Time. He doesn't have Pacific Time. He doesn't have Alaska Time. Nobody knows what time it is in Hawaii. So every second, every partition of a second has a purpose assigned to it. How many purposes are assigned to it? Just imagine how his mind thinks. What he can do. His ability to record that. Everything is recorded. Okay, And to repeat, Genesis 1, 14 through 19, that occurs before Adam and the woman were created, before the animal kingdom was created. So who was it for when he put the portrayal of his time system in the heavens? Who got to see it? Because the animals hadn't been created yet, and neither had the human beings. So who's left? Who got to witness? Obviously the ones that witnessed it is the angels, and that means it's for the angels, isn't it? So he put the sun and the moon and ruled them over the darkness and the light for the simple purpose of giving that. One of the purposes is to make the angels aware of time. How aware of time were they prior to that? They obviously had some concept of it, but he's really hammering it in here. So, again, who was it for? Who witnessed the dividing, the division of the light from the darkness? Well, the answer is obvious. The angels did. How did they respond, Job 38, 7? When they saw the darkness and the light separated and divided, how did they respond? The sons of God shouted for joy. What's the next easy question? How did the sons of Satan respond to it? The wicked, Matthew 13, 19, Revelation 9, Matthew 5, 9, Revelation 12. I'm going to tell you, they did not shout for joy. Because time proves something. What do I say time proves? All the time I say the same thing. What does Henry Bergson say that time proves? Time proves free will. And they knew it. They shouted for joy. Because Satan's lie, of course, the fundamental, the concrete of Satan's lie is that there is no free will. And here comes the sun and the moon, and they shout for joy. It's a vindication of God's character. So we have another aspect to the representation of the great sign of time is to proclaim to the fallen demons that the end of the wicked had begun. There's an end to wickedness. Remember, that's another aspect. I will face no adversity. I will face no accountability, Psalm 10. That's what Satan says, and that's what his wicked angels say. And here comes the sun and the moon. Time is happening. And that connects to 1 Peter 3.19, as you know, where Christ makes his proclamation to the demons that are in prison, which begins to answer, though barely, lecture 191 question. How does time praise God? Well, I've given that answer away already, too. But there's not a whole lot more. Anyway, time for man and beast is felt. 
different than time for angels is felt. Angels are not subjected to an aging over time towards death. They are not subjected to that. Therefore, time was not individualized for the wicked one. It was and is a collective effect for them. And why is that so? Why not uniformity? Why aren't we all under the same kind of issue? But we're not. Our bodies die. They they don't. We resurrect. They don't. We multiply along the kind, and they can't. There's no uniformity. So why? Why not uniformity? Well, we do have an answer, I think. We do have Matthew 22, 29 through 33. We have the Genesis 28, 13. That's again another I am that I am. We have Exodus 3, 14, which is the I am that I am statement from the Word of God made flesh, John 1, 14. I'm sorry, John 1, 1 through 4. Where Jesus God is responding now to the Sadducees in Matthew 22:29-33. He's responding to the Sadducees. He begins by informing them that they are wrong about the resurrection. He said, you're wrong. And he explains to them why they're wrong again, uh, Genesis 28:13. And he also says, you don't know anything about the scriptures or the power of God. You don't have any idea. You're clueless. That's a brutal, common, condemnatory affidavit. I, the God that's included in Matthew 22, 30 and is placed alongside the God of the living, that's Jesus Christ, revealing that he is the I am that I am of the burning bush. If I could say one thing to the Israelites, I get a couple of people from Israel that listen to me. Not very many, but a few every now and then, one or two will check in. And I see you when you do. I find you. I know you listened. I want you to recognize one thing. Jesus Christ is the, is the voice of the burning bush. He's the I am that I am. He is the word of God made flesh. He is God himself. The God of the Jews. That's who he is. He's the angel of the Lord. Anyhow, the creator God of all things, Colossians 1, 15-18, he divulges that the eternal state of mankind and angels will be comparable. He does that at Matthew 22, 29 through 33. He says that we're going to have equality, we're going to have conformity, we're going to have uniformity in the eternal state. And he says it this way. We're going to be comparable if not equal. He says neither will multiply. Well, that makes some sense because the angels don't multiply as it is. But neither will man multiply. There will be no more multiplication. Why not? Why won't we have babies being born in the eternal state? We will not. Why not? I'll wait for your answers. I will answer it next lecture, so now you'll have to come back. And when you recognize that neither will multiply, which you then immediately connect to Genesis 127, 128, and of course Genesis 6, 1 through 2, where we have multiplication. One is evil and one is, is ordained. And that's one of the things that's happening to our country right now, isn't it? We cannot, we have tried to destroy, this country is trying to destroy God's definition of male and female. And Genesis 127, 28. And keep in mind that the stupid Sadducees, which have been identified by God himself as stupid, you know nothing. And can I say stupid? Apparently I can say stupid. I have the ability, much to the dismay of the absolute determinists. Huh? But I digress, which is I have another ability. I can digress. I can say stupid. I have the ability and I can digress. I have the ability. Where does that ability come from? Anyway, the stupid Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection or did not believe in the resurrection or in Genesis 3-7, which is the breath of the spirit of life. They don't believe in, they didn't believe in the existence of angels. That's all Acts 23-7. The Pharisees actually believed in all three. They believed that there was a spirit, a soul inside a human being, it's an animal. They believed in the existence of angels and they believed in the resurrection. They couldn't prove it. That's why the Sadducees tormented them. That's why Christ eliminated the Sadducean argument in Matthew uh, 
So anyway, the Pharisees actually believed in all three, and the Sadducees believed in none of that. And that surprises everyone who has ever read Matthew 23, which is the woe that Christ proclaims to the Pharisees. The stupid Sadducees, can I say stupid, were a small sect of wealthy, rich, intellectual, political operatives. Is this going to sound familiar? They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the spirit of life. They don't believe in the soul. They don't believe in the existence of angels. And they controlled the temple. So when Christ goes into the temple, Matthew 21, 12, what's he, who's he throwing out? He's throwing out the Sadducees because they're in charge of the temple. They're out there selling salvation. You have to pay them to be saved, which, of course, is an absolute perversion of the Bible. And Christ overturned the temple or the tables and threw them out. That's the Sadducees. That's the people that don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the spirit of soul. And they don't believe in angels. That's who's running the place. So quickly consider the irony. The Sadducees who believed in essentially nothing, right? No salvation. No resurrection. No Ecclesiastes 12.7, soul, spirit of life. No Genesis 2.7, no angels. They're in charge and they're making big money selling salvation, which cannot be bought because it's the blood of Christ. One drop of it is an infinite. You can't pay for infinity. It's got to be a gift. It's got to be given. It must be grace. Through the shed blood of Christ, Galatians 3.1.9, 1 John 1.7-9, Romans 5.9. Again, can you buy something that is infinite, which is the blood of Christ? Can you buy one drop of infinity? No, you can't. Don't be a stupid Sadducee. To regroup the situation here, the Sadducees are monistic atheists. They have taken control of the church, the Jerusalem temple where the truths of God were supposed to be taught. They've completely corrupted the imperative doctrines of Scripture, and they're getting paid big money to do it. And does that remind you of anything? Well, I would say the current state of American academia. That would be Yale and Harvard and Stanford and Berkeley and Duke and all the leftist churches that we're dealing with now. And Christ further rebukes the Sadducee in monism by declaring John 11.25. He says, he's referring to them more than anybody else. I am the resurrection and I am the spirit of the breath of life. He says that in 11.25. The Sadducees didn't believe in any one of them. He says, it's me. I'm both of those things. And so we have, uh, we have our churches are just veering into the leftist ditch in order to get along and make money. That's Romans 1.22 through 32, proving that Solomon was right, Ecclesiastes 1.9, and so was Larry Norman. Nothing really changes. Everything remains the same. We are what we are until the day that we die. Larry Norman. Do you remember that? You're old enough. Okay, that, that was a far more intricate song lyric and more complicated than most people recognize. Okay, for today, how am I doing? Wow, I am cruising. I can have an intermission. Okay, I've got only, uh, let's see, 12 pages to go. Who writes all this stuff? How long does it take him to write 7,500 words that make no sense to nobody but him. How long does that happen? Huh? Two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. I should say, in the old days, we used to have a music service because you guys were, especially Dave, was very involved in that. And I played the banjo. That took 30 minutes. Most people were, would come after it was over, especially if I was playing the banjo. But now I get to all that time. I've stolen it, right? Yeah. I don't have the any of that stuff anymore. And everybody cheers that I'm not playing the banjo. Okay. And for today, we're going to restrict ourselves to why Jesus, the infinite God, placed the angels and mankind within this envelope of the I am that I am along with the multiplication aspect of it because he does that again when he rebukes the Sadducees. They will not multiply. They will be the same. They will be like each other. Human beings will be like angels. Angels will be like human beings. How's that going to work? Because he is the God, and, and, and again, and, and he also has the certainty of the John 11:25 resurrection. I'm the resurrection, resurrection and the life. 
He is the God of the living as he defines living. And somehow all of those, it's a math problem. You've got to add them all together. All of those little pieces contribute. And why are these parts of a whole and how is this so? Hebrews 12.32, as you hopefully remember, declaratively shouts and announces that the uncountable faithful angels will inhabit the new city of Jerusalem. They're going to be there in the new city of Jerusalem. The city of the living God, alongside of the uncountable assembly, Revelation 7.9, of the church of the firstborn. Christ being the firstborn, so the church of Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 19, Psalm 89, 27, Revelation 1, 5. Animals, Revelation 5, 13, and 1 Timothy 4, 4 will be there also. So we're going to have the angels, we're going to have the church of the firstborn, we're going to have the saved, and we're going to have animals. And the fruitful and the multiplying will have ended. No more multiplication. No more puppies, no more kittens. Okay? And we, the angels, I'm sorry, we and the angels were equalized in some sense. And we know the bodies of man are changed, as as it's so with the animals. Then how is it then that if we're changed and the animals are changed, who else could be changed in in this system? Well, that would be the angels. They can be changed too. And and if they're going to be changed, what does that testify of? It's one of the 11 mysteries, as I should say. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 50 through 58, the sixth mystery. Behold, now this I say, corruption does not inherit incorruption, but we shall be changed. The mortal will put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 is a well-known and constantly quoted passage, as it should be, but I obviously advance that it is far more difficult and comprehensive to understand than we are led to believe as usual. No one thinks about these things, unfortunately, and it's a shame. God will be cleansing heaven and earth with his blood, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. If the principle of 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 applies to man and animals, Isaiah 65:25, Revelation 5:13. Does it apply to the faithful, unfallen angels? Are they going to be changed? We got a whole lot of change going on. Are they going to be changed too, or just us and the animals? Well, if they're not changed, why aren't they changed? Do they want to be changed? So we got a whole bunch of hows and whys here. So what do we got? Time was revealed before mankind and animals were created sun and the moon, and it was revealed so the angels would see it start. In the past, I've described this as a countdown clock. Some might refer to it, I think I'm going to prefer this too, as a doomsday hourglass. That's what he did when he put the sun and the moon up, in my view. Obviously, the angels saw this as applying foremost to who? Because there's no animals and no human beings, so who do they thought the hourglass was for? Who got to see it? It was for them. Obviously, Revelation 12, 7 through 12 records the joy of the faithful angels when Satan is finally cast out of the heavenly estate with his army of demons and they're now restricted to the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of earth, Revelation 12, 12. The point is, yea, a point. Is anyone counting? How many points have we had so far? One. The hourglass has released the appointed amount of time. The conditions have changed. Satan and his fallen wicked ones are slowly but resolutely being compressed by what's happening with time. Their wait for it, we'll wait for Dave to come through here. Their freedom is being reduced. Matthew, sorry, Revelation 12. Redefined. Satan and his forces are now tethered to the earth. They're cast out of the heaven. The time has come to get rid of them. And again, let me repeat it. Satan had access. He still has access. He has the freedom to go wherever he wants to go, heaven or earth. And that is going to be taken away. Note again the ironic element of that. That which he says doesn't exist is going to be withdrawn from him. I'm sorry, Revelation 12. And this time, this particular time of Satan and his forces tethered to the earth, praises the Lord God of all of creation. 
We have the rejoicing of the faithful angels, Revelation 12.12. Whenever the faithful angels uh, rejoice, we should go get all of those and put them together and see what they're rejoicing over. You'll see the trend. Obviously, Revelation 12.12 raises Job 38.7. When the morning stars sang together, shouted for joy, when God had laid the foundations of earth, the cornerstone, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 7, Acts 4, 11, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. When God laid the foundations of the earth, the cornerstone, Job 38, 6, Revelation 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain. I can't say lamb because my mouth is still really sore. Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain. Afar off. The foundation of the cosmos, the creation, the universe. Is that word means doesn't mean from, it means afar off or by. The foundation of the cosmos, which is not the world. It's the creation of the entire structure. It's the universe as well. In other words, the lamb slain before time is the cornerstone of everything. Time, however, is a foundational piece. Notice he says the cornerstone is before time. And time is part of the foundation, but the cornerstone is before the foundation of, the, of time. So how does the hourglass praise God? How does time testify of free will? If the freedom of the wicked to execute and commit and inflict evil is constrained by God, and it is, we have the, we have the, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to hold back. Do we all agree? That the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to hold back sin. To keep it from running loose. We're the salt of the dead body. And salt is a preservative. But he is the restrainer. And so we have, again, if the freedom of the wicked to execute and commit and inflict evil is constrained by God, it doesn't seem to many people that it's much restrained, does it? But it is. Just imagine how bad it's going to be in the tribulation when it's unrestrained, right? When the church is gone and the Holy Spirit. He's not gone and we have 144,000 and we do have those that are being saved. But anyway, repeat, the freedom of the wicked to commit and inflict evil is constrained by God. Genesis 3.17, Genesis 6.3, Matthew 25.41, he stops it. He can he contains it. Hebrews nine twenty seven, Psalm ninety ten, and Revelation nine. If you know that's a fact, and it is, then the obvious implication it's a fact of Scripture. The obvious implication is obvious. The wicked have the ability to perpetrate evil. Raise your hand if you think the uh, the wicked do not have the ability to perpetrate evil, that do acts of evil, to think of evil, to purpose evil. To follow through on evil. Do they have the ability? Proverbs 2.14 says they do. They rejoice in doing evil. And they delight in perversity. And now the hyper-Calvinist position always focuses on the inability of man to do good, right? Man cannot do good, they will say to you. What's the obvious question? They ignore the wicked angel's ability to do evil. And wicked men's ability to do evil. If I have the ability to do good, if I don't have the ability to do good, how is it that I have the ability to do evil? I should have no ability across the board. Do you agree? Okay, uh uh-oh. Oops, there goes another rubber tree tree plant for the Calvinists, right? They have to explain the, they have to explain evil, the choice of doing evil in the verses that said that the wicked rejoice in doing evil and delight in perversity. If they can do that, what else can they do becomes the question. Why is it that those who love evil are predestined to love evil? Is that the case? Do you have, do you say they're doing evil because they're predestined to do evil? Because if you say they can't do good and they're predestined to not be able to do good, then they must be predestined to do evil. And who has predestined that? Clearly this line of thought is illogical. The thought, the rejoicing in wickedness, the delighting in perversity, those are purposes. Those purposes are being recorded. That's willful purposes. They are the result of a twisted condition. Romans 124.32. Romans 1.32 says, Those who choose depravity, note that, those who choose depravity know the righteous judgment of God. Okay. 
How can a predestined, doomed from birth robot know the righteous judgment of God? He can't know anything. He doesn't have the ability to know anything. Once again, artificial intelligence is not intelligence. No such thing as artificial intelligence. There's only intelligence. How can you know the righteous judgment of God? You have to compare it to something. Anyway, we'll move along. Hopefully many, if not all of you listening, have begun to resolve how God is praised by time. I've given you enough hints, I hope. But I'll clean it up for you later. Before we progress, and that's assuming that progress is applicable to anything that I do, thank you for the time, the time stamp, the hourglass. Uh, so, progress again. Is it applicable to Cliffsidians? I don't know. The, Ber- the, the Bergsonian philosophy is that free will is proven by time. And this is a good place to consider the five constants, which I know will just make people drop like dead flies. That's the gravitational force constant. That's the electromagnetic force constant. That's the strong nuclear force constant and the weak nuclear force constant. Those are the four fundamental forces. We also have the cosmological constant. That's Einstein and now Hubble. Einstein came up with a with a cosmological constant. Nobody liked it. Hubble's come up with one. No one likes that one either. The cosmological constant, can, just so you know, controls the expansion of the universe. The universe is expanding, and some, the rate of expansion is, a constant, is the uh, cosmological constant. Because uh, there's, you, you should know, there is a hi, hi, hypothesized, undiscovered repulsive force. So keeping the, the expansion from running amok. And there's this balance. Dave brought up balance last week. There's this balance against the attractive gravitational force. And there's this perfectly balanced, if not uh, not balanced. The universe, if it's not perfectly balanced, if it's not balanced, the universe is going to explode. If I have too much gravitational force, the I will have total fragmentation as well because I'll have a total collapse. So there has to be this balance. Something is balancing everything. What's a better way of saying that? Note that I'm emphasizing balance. Did I say balance enough, Dave? I'm going to try to keep going because obviously that's a big deal, isn't it? If I have balance everywhere in the creation, and I do, then where else will I have balance? You see, that the particle physicists, uh, they have their standard model of particle physics and they, of which all matter consists. That's what they will say, which is, uh, of course, uh, completely blown away by what Christ says in, first, uh, in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And they have their standard again, and they have quarks, which make up protons and neutrons. They have leptons, which uh, include electrons, and they have the force-carrying particles, which are the bosons, and they have others. Um, but those are the main ones, and uh, those are the main building blocks, if you will. Theoretically, I should say theoretically. And to credit the physicists, the standard model of particle physics does have some credibility. There are success and predictability. What are the implications of probability and predictability, by the way? Oh. Predictions associated with the standard model have actually had reasonable successful outcomes. So we will, we will accept the standard model in theory. Uh, with that said, it's nonetheless, it's, un, it's incomplete. It's an incomplete model, which is why it remains a theoretical construct. For example, and this is my personal favorite example. This is what delights me more than anything else. I am absolutely thrilled by this. There has yet to be discovered a dark matter particle. What? How many times have you heard dark matter, dark energy? How many times do you hear that? We have never found a dark matter particle. And if we can't find a dark matter particle, then that means what? There is no dark matter. Oh, in fact, it seems obvious that there is no more particles to be found, period. But they're still looking for particles. And why do they look for particles? So they can build more colliders and they can make more what? And if there's no more particles to be found, what is the theological implications of that? Since we're talking about theological implications... Well, that would be John 4.24, Matthew 5.6. God is spirit. He's in the secret place. He is invisible. All things consist in Him. Again, Colossians 13.1, Through Him and for Him, He created all things. Obviously, if you begin with the false premise 
that particles are the basis of the physical reality, then he who is the spirit, who is non-particle, will by definition be excluded in the search for more particles. More particles are necessary because the golden fleece of particle physics is the grand unified theory, all the forces and particles consolidated into a singular postulate. Unfortunately, we don't have a grand unified theorem. There's a long list of unfruitful searches out there, hopefully for particles, other hope-for particles that don't exist. Dark matter, again, the axion doesn't exist. The weak interacting massive particle doesn't exist. There's no unstable proton. Proton, sorry. There's no supersymmetric particle. And again, my favorite, there's no dark matter particle. Next time somebody talks to you about dark matter or you read it or watch it on television, just scream at the television, there has never been found a dark matter particle. And so if there's no dark matter particle and, there's, and you want to make sure that there's dark matter, what does the dark matter have to be made of? In fact, there's a paper out there, actually. It's called Waiting for a Ghost, the Search for Dark Matter. To repeat, the search is doomed because particle physicists, they predict particles. But the force is not a particle. It's a person. He says so. The person, the I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. Particle physicists believe all things are made of particles and particles do not have a will. Therefore, human have no will because humans are what? Made of particles. Humans are not made of particles. That's where they go wrong. Humans are made of Genesis 2-7. The body is just a mechanism. It's just a, uh, a device in which to manifest what the mind is saying, what the spirit is saying. Genesis 2-7. So they, when they say you don't have any free will because particles don't have free will and you're made of particles, well, the, that's spurious. We're not made of particles. My personhood is not a particle-based device. It's a spiritual-based device. And I said a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of lectures ago, I guess I should say now, the free will element of our free will is not in the body. It is in the spirit. The spirit is equipped with the free will mechanism, not the body. Okay, likewise, the grand unified theory, who is that? Who unifies everything? Who's the one person that can unify all the theories? Well, that would be Christ Jesus himself. He is the grand unifier. In him all things consist. He knows all things. They will respond, the particle physicists who don't like what I have to say, that time is on their side. And I know there's some irony right there on display. They only need to say to you, they will say to me, they only need to have to design better. They're not designing well enough and they have to have a better detective equipment or a detection equipment. They can't detect these particles because our detection part, our, um, Equipment isn't good enough. And I agree that might surprise them. But they actually do need superior detection material. I just so happen to have one. It will tell them how it all works. It is the grand unification theory on display. It will lead them to unification. It will also warn them that time is not on their side. Oops. Okay, more of this later. Gotta go. Let's return to Henri Bergson. We have time for time, maybe. Bergsonian philosophy includes the premise that time is wedded to free will. Time and, and free will. And therefore, time is confirmation of the existence of God because God is the one who has will and he gives that will. As it follows, the source of all things is the mind and the power of the creator God. His unimaginable intelligence, which includes his divine will. They are ignoring his divine will all across the board, theologically, philosophically, and with regard to particle physics, Romans 12, 2, 1 Peter 2, 15, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, Matthew 6, 10. These four verses help us arrive at the ultimate time, or what I would call the time of all times. Sometimes I've called it the time of God or the God time. Bergson called it, called it subjective time. Isn't it obvious that the greatest of all recorded times, so we have one time, if we're going to say of all the things that have been recorded in time, what is the greatest time record? Record. I would hope you would say that that would be the death of Christ. Everything has a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Ecclesiastes 3.1, a time to be born and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3.2. Romans 8.28 is directly interlaced with Ecclesiastes 3.1 through 2. It's my hope that you remember Romans 8.28 from a few lectures back. 
And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That comes into play. For which He foreknew. It says, for which He foreknew. He foreknew His purpose. Revelation 13.8 comes into play here as well. The book of life of the Lamb slain out of the foundations of the cosmos, the creation of the universe, time being a foundational element of all of that. Jesus Christ is the purpose of God. The purpose of God, the good, Matthew 20.15, John 10.11-14. Ecclesiastes 3.1-2 is, in my opinion, referring to the birth and death of Christ. John 5.39 tells me that's the case. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3.2, that's talking about the birth and the death of Christ. That's the preeminent. Now, obviously, it talks about us as well. The higher view is that that is Christ. Again, John 5.39, let me repeat that. The Old Testament testifies of Christ on every single page. Search, therefore, for the purpose of God. He is the purpose of God. Why did Christ yield up His Spirit? Why did He die at 3 o'clock p.m.? Of all the times he could have picked, that's the one he picks. Does he know what knows? Does he know what time it is when he releases his spirit? Yes, he does. How good is he at this? Oh, he got it right, didn't he? So why this time? Why that time? Notice the faithful angels rejoice again. To repeat, Job thirty-eight seven, Luke fifteen ten, Luke fifteen seven through ten, and again, Job thirty-eight seven and Luke fifteen seven through ten. They're they're conjoined here. They're coterminous. Also, Revelation 12.12 12 is, is, is linked here because the angels are celebrating, they're rejoicing over the casting out of Satan and his demons. They are thrilled over that. We know that the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents from his or her unbelief. So therefore, does Revelation 13.8, those who during the tribulation who take the mark of the Satan man, the Antichrist, Revelation 14.9-10, they're not written in the book of life of the slain lamb. Not written in the book of life. So their names are not written in there because they took the mark. And the book of life is opened at the great white throne, Revelation 20, 11 through 12, Daniel 7, 10, Daniel 12, 1. It is the time of finding everyone who is written in the book of life. Obvious question then is when the name and the time is recorded for someone in the book of life, how do the angels respond? Does the rejoicing of the angels, Luke 15.10, coincide with the writing of the names in the book of life? I submit that this is the most compelling view. And if I, if I am right, then the implications are profound or prodigious. Henry Bergson would agree. Name and time written in the book of life of, of a lamb slain proves free will. That's Bergson thought process. There's a time for when the angels rejoice because they see your name, Dave's name, my name, Lori's name. They see those names go into that book of life and they rejoice. They rejoice over those names. And that's what's going on there. Finally, everyone's favorite word. Did I start on time? (sighs) Joke. Okay, everyone's favorite word is finally. Anyway, Mr. HTRP, how do you counter the super-deterministic argument at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14? They think that I can't do it. My gosh. Well, Ephesians 1, 3, 14 is not what they say it is. Let's start there. Hebrews 10, 19 through 39 will quickly begin to unravel the no-free-will assertion they believe they found in Ephesians 1. They think they found it in there. Hebrews 10.23 outlines the hope that is promised from him who is faithful. But there is a lot more there. In order to unravel this, you're going to need the Simeon prophecy because the Simeon prophecy is deeply involved in Ephesians 1.3-14. Have I ever read a super-determinist that has writes in there, well, you know, whenever I look at Ephesians 1.3-14, I think the Simeon prophecy might be a problem for me. I've never read that ever. I don't think I'll ever read it in my whole life. But I'm going to tell them that they should be thinking about that. 
Because what is the Simeon prophecy? Well, it's the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. So we're going to have to know the Hebrew betrothal ceremony as well. Here we go. And, and, and that's the third mystery of the seventh. And the seventh mystery of the eleven mysteries. The mystery of his will. Ephesians 1.9. According to his good pleasure is a crucial clue. That's actually what it says in Ephesians 1.9. So too is Enoch. I'm going to have to deal with Enoch here because i got the church and I've got Israel to deal with here. And i got Matthew 23. That's the woes of the condemnation of the Pharisees. Why does God, why does Christ condemn the Pharisees? You're a son of hell, he said. Why does he do that? He tells them that. How many were saved by that? He's always saving. The Hebrew word for foundations at Job 38.6 has to come into play because it's plural there. Matthew 12.22-48 is, in, is in, the, in the game. And so is the Song of Solomon. So is Psalm 139.16. So is Roman 2.11, which is he has no partiality. Deuteronomy 10.17, same thing, and no partiality. I've got Ezekiel 16.4 we're going to have to bring into this debate. I also got John 21.15-19. And that's just to name a few of the pieces that shreds the common hyper... Calvinistic view of Ephesians 1, 3-14. And feel free to start without me. Make a list. This is what you do. Everything that I gave you, make a list. Figure out how they connect. Make a list of all the words in Ephesians 1 through 3-14. through 14. Uh, Because that's incredible. When you do it that way, you will find Beloved in there. Why did he put Beloved in this passage? You will find, like I said, good. His good pleasure is in there. What's he referring to when he does that? So make a list of all of that and figure out how they all fit together. Now, really fast, let me get this out. I got a comment from a gentleman in Texas, Mark from Texas, and he says, perhaps, gentle suggestion. It's also time for you to start making remote altar calls at the end of your sermons, to tell the vast Internet audience how to come to Christ. He believes, and I think he's absolutely correct, he's watching the decay of our country. He's seen a, a war in Europe again. He's seen all these things. We're watching digital currency come into put to effect. All of these things which are predicted, in my view, by the Bible. And it's happening all around us. And so that means we are what's happening to us. We are running out of what? Time. And that means people are running out of time. And the solution to that, of course, and I'll get—I'll try to refine it a little bit, but if you're listening to me, God has no partiality, Romans 10.11, Joel 2.32, and, and Romans 10.13, whoever calls out to him will be saved. That's a promise. He is faithful to do it. Joel 2.26. And I would say to you, your name was going to be somewhere. It will be nowhere or it will be in a book. You want a time in your name and all of that. Get a time. Get your name in there. That's the plan. That's all you need to do. Get a time next to your name in the book of life. Use your free will. How many people did I make mad right there? That's how you do it. Whoever calls out his name and asked to be saved by Him will be saved. Every one of you. Okay. 